Thanks, Mark. We're uh, at the heart of the gospel this morning, and uh, I asked for a little, even more concentration this morning to just follow where we're going, not because it's inherently complicated, but because it is this morning uh, technical in terms of being at the heart of our faith. Of sin and the way out, that's what the whole of the book of Romans and crystallized in that which we could have chosen many passages Paul is talking about. About sin and salvation. Imagine the scene. Mother is in the house and suddenly little Sam comes crashing into the room. He is crying, he is yelling, judging from the noise he must be critically if not terminally ill or injured. And mum kneels down gives him a hug and says, what's the matter? I've hurt my leg, he says, gulping through the sobs. It's a small graze. It's nothing much in the great scheme of things. And mum rubs it better as she says, how on earth did you do that? I've fallen, he said. When most people use the word fall, That's what they mean. You've keeled over, or you've slipped, or you've tumbled. Or we use the word fall about our emotions. We talk about falling head over heels in love. Or if we were in the United States, we would be entering now the fall to denote the season we English quaintly refer to as autumn, which I prefer still, really. But in a religious sense, the term the fall has particular and very important connotations. Connotations which are particularly appropriate when poppies are starting to be seen everywhere, and this year we will note 100 years from the, on from the end of the First World War. You see, the fall is a term which attempts to describe why human beings are as they are. Why are human beings declared in the book of Genesis to be the pinnacle of God's creation, the pièce de résistance, the greatest achievement and yet the source of so much anguish and lamenting and mess. Why are human beings who are supposed to be created in God's image to hold the imago dei within them such a flawed, poor image? Why are human beings who are supposed to be stewards over the created earth such dreadful stewards. Everything Midas touched turns to gold. Why does everything human beings touch eventually fall to dust? But the term the fall not only suggests how we are, it suggests why we are as we are. It suggests by the very term, the fall, 
that we were not as we were once were, that we're not as we're designed to be, that something has happened that results in us being described like this, which is different from originally being described like this. It's as if the writer of Genesis, and we read just a small part of chapter three this morning, it's as if the writer of Genesis starts with the wonders of creation, the seas, the skies, the earth, the heavens, and humanity. It's wonderful, it's glorious, it's full of potential, it's magnificent. And then like a rocket on firework night, zooming up into the sky with showers of brightness, the rocket and humanity comes down to earth with a bump and is dead and lifeless. It's in this way that Adam and Eve enter the scene in the book of Genesis. The story tells what we know the story very well, what began so well, what held so much promise, what somehow painted the picture of how God wanted life to be on the planet that he created, falls. And Adam and Eve disobey God and then they hide away from God and from that time onwards, the book of Genesis, the whole of the Bible and the whole of human history tells you of a world which becomes ever more ridden with strife, filled with evil and deceit and violence. That's why we have snakes and apples, at least in art, they're not mentioned anywhere in the book of Genesis. Fig leaves, they are. And for the first but not the last time, we begin to read in the book of Genesis about death and disobedience and mortality instead of everlasting life. How art the mighty fallen? The effects of the fall are called by another religious word. And the word is sin. Sin is, if you like, the fall working itself out, being itself. It's the plain evidence that humankind seems totally unable to resist the temptation to disobey God. See what happens. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is about what we are before it is ever what we do. Because the effects of the fall of all humanity are everywhere and they taint everything. Otherwise, good and wonderful potential things lie in ruins and are twisted because the very nature of sin is to twist and disfigure. So we humans can't use power properly. The power to do good is so often overtaken by the almost irresistible urge for self-gratification and often self-destruction. 
or the destruction of others or violence or oppression or abuse or discrimination. How does the saying go? Power corrupts and... Power corrupts and... Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Why? Because of sin. We can't love properly. So often there is, even in our most deep loving emotions, an, a selfish gene so that what God gave to be given away and to be free and nourishing is often seen through the lens of what I need and what I want and what I have to get out of this deal. Altruism, the notion that somebody does what is good for others without any concern or anything coming back to them at all, is highly prized precisely because it's so rare. We can't use morality properly. We wrap it up in political one-liners or we cling film it with narrow puritanical definitions or we throw it like unexploded bombs at people. Be like this, behave like this. We can't use knowledge properly. In Star Wars language, we're forever bending towards the dark side. Biographies about J. Robert Oppenheimer, one of the main creators of the first atomic bomb, relate the mounting sense of excitement in that team and then a growing realization just what they were creating. They, the team, and Oppenheimer among them, have symptoms of angst. They start suffering from sleeplessness and nightmares. And they have no one but each other to share this with. All this alongside the pressure to come up with the goods as World War II becomes increasingly complex and involves now America and Japan. We know now, we didn't know then, that Oppenheimer wrote to President Harry Truman begging for a test in the Nevada desert, not only to see if the atomic bomb worked, but to see what it did. And he received no reply. And the horror of Nagasaki and Hiroshima was the first proper use of the weapon that he'd spent several years sharing in the creation. Do you note some of the symptoms of fallenness and sin, even in that brief account? Noble ambition, honorable intentions, brilliant intellect, honest, hard work begins to turn to guilt and alienation and isolation. Oppenheimer himself, who was not a very convinced Jew, said, now I am become death. And he described his own feelings as unclean, guilt-ridden, and sinful. Today, 
every new discovery has the potential to take us towards a better world and presents us with ever more terrible propositions of misuse. It's the constant balancing act that we have to live with. The same human brilliance that can rid us of horrendous inherited mental and physical disabilities can also in someone else's hand be used to produce inbuilt genetic weaknesses and devastation. Terrific possibilities go hand in hand with horrific possibilities. And the reason that we are nervous at our best about these things can be described in two words, fallenness and sin. Now before you all go stick your head in an oven, the title of this sermon was Sin and the Way Out. Because despite all this commentary, which actually you didn't need, because I've not told you one thing about humankind that you do not know and that you have not experienced in some kind or other. In spite of all this, the New Testament is a book from beginning to end of hope with a capital H. Given all that we've said, we do witness a truly good act. And it causes us to take an intake of breath. We do witness a kindness that seems to be truly altruistic. We do witness people who seem to resist the irresistible temptation to evil. We do see those whose endurance in the coping with evil or injustice or illness is incredible faith and hope. We do see from time to time the power of a love that seems to go, wow. We see it on the news. Sometimes within seconds of watching some terrible event or somebody doing something ghastly and awful to somebody else, then within a matter of 10 seconds, we're looking at somebody who did this, this and this. And we go, who is this humankind? Was it Blaise Pascal who talked about humankind as the pride and the scum of the universe? Now think for a moment. Why, when faced with evil and violence, do so many of us still get angry and reject and want to rectify the situation? Why, when a person runs into a school and guns down a class full of their mates, do we feel sick to our stomachs? Why, when we see frightened children in war zones, does it still bring us to tears? Why? Because deep down inside, in spite of the fall and sin, 
we know somewhere that this is not how it's meant to be. And our feelings represent a deep kind of hope. Sociologists several decades ago called it an indicator experience because it almost seemed that deep down within our spiritual or even genetic DNA, we knew a deeper truth about ourselves. We knew something of our ultimate origins. And we knew that what so fills our lives on an everyday level is not how it's supposed to be. We have fallen. Now, if all that's too heavy, try G.K. Chesterton. Why not? Brilliant. He said this, If I wish to dissuade a person from drinking his tenth whiskey, I clap him on the back and say, Be a man. No one who wishes to dissuade a crocodile from eating its tenth employer, explorer would slap it on the back and say, be a crocodile. Do you get it? Despite all the pervasiveness of sin, that realization deep within us that essentially we are not as we were meant to be in us, we cry out to a sympathetic, listening, active, creator, healer, and savior, who nods and says, I put those deep feelings there, and I am the remedy for them. And at this point, we're at the heart of the Christian gospel that caused someone like Charles Wesley to write the first hymn that we sung today. He used language that uh, perhaps a modern hymn writer wouldn't write about bruising Satan's head, but the imagery is just classic New Testament beliefs. Jesus, the name high over all, the remedy. It's what Paul's talking about when he talks in that rather complex language in Romans that Mark read for us, that somehow or other, sin came into the world and polluted everything and everybody, and therefore the only remedy is for someone to do something so astonishingly redemptive and wonderful that it doesn't reverse the process as if it's never happened, but it rectifies the process so that everyone has an opportunity to know that their lot, their eternal lot, is not ended in the narrative of sin and fallenness, but can end in the narrative of salvation and godliness. That is the Christian gospel. For if sin is the before, then salvation is the after. If we're born as creatures of the fall, then something must happen to enable us to become creatures of salvation. We're not born believing Christians, we have to become believers. I end with a story, or nearly end with a story. Somewhere in Otley, my 
town of my youth, it's in West Yorkshire, in the foundations of what must now be a 55-year-old detached house, there is a little pair of child Wellington boots. Because little boys love trudging through mud, deep mud. And when a house has been built, there's mud everywhere. And they sometimes get stuck. And like little Sam in the first story, they begin to cry and shout for help because they can move neither one foot nor the other. Which is why somewhere in Otley in West Yorkshire, in the foundations of what is now a 55-year-old detached house, next to a pair of children's Wellington boots, is a pair of size six Marks and Spencer's woman's slippers. Belonging to a woman who came running at the crying of a child, wades into the deep mud, and rescues her son, extracting him like a cork from a bottle, but leaving behind wellies and slippers. Because you see, what the New Testament is about is this. When we're all stuck in the mud, it's no good telling ourselves to pull ourselves out by our bootlaces. Someone has got to rescue you. And that's what salvation is about. Salvation is is as inherent in Jesus as sin is as inherent in us. Except that in spite so often of so much to the contrary, the power of salvation the supremacy of grace is greater ultimately than the power of sin. For Jesus' love swamps sinfulness. Jesus enables us to begin again and progress in a different way with different categories, with different aspirations, with different aims, with different reasons for being to a different end. There is a way out of sin. Do you remember when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989? I watched the news as I did uh, all great events And I remember the story of a woman who on hearing on the radio that the wall had crumbled came from East Germany, the uh, eastern side of the wall, and arrived at the Brandenburg Gate with a small rucksack which was everything she had in the world that she was wanting to take with her. She wanted to see her family who were on the other side, on the western side of Berlin, who she now hadn't seen for decades. And when she saw the Brandenburg Gate still locked and guards still on duty, she sank to the pavement, weeping, totally distraught, until someone came along and lifted her up to see what was the matter. On the news, the look on the woman's face when it was explained to her that although the Brandenburg Gate was still shut, If she walked just a few hundred yards, 
to Checkpoint Charlie, the gates were open. And said the correspondent, they will never be closed again. That's what's happened in Christ. It's behind every evangelical sermon. It's behind every Christian act of proclamation. So, I close. We must take sin more seriously than we often do. And we must take saving grace more seriously than we always do. Both are real. In one is our death and in the other is our hope of life. Choose the only way out of sin. Choose Christ, the Lord of life. Amen.